This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. Germany calling, Germany calling. During World War II, a new medium gave people on the home front the kind of insight into the front lines they'd lacked during World War I, radio. This relatively new technology enabled political figures such as Winston Churchill to warn of the dangers of Nazism even before the war began. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. But radio waves are not confined by national boundaries, and the British were not the only ones to see the usefulness of this technology during wartime. In 1939, listeners in the UK began hearing seemingly British, yet unwelcome messages over the radio. I am talking to you about Germany. That is a concept that many of you may have failed to understand. In this episode, I explore Lord Hawthorne and the Nazis' radio propaganda machine. During World War One. All sides used propaganda, both to foster a sense of patriotism or nationalism, while also using atrocity propaganda to portray enemies in an inhuman light. In Britain, actual atrocities committed by the German troops during the sacking of Louvain received much attention, but so did false allegations that the Germans used corpse factories to produce soap and glycerin from the remains of the war dead. After the war, stories such as the soap factory were proven false. Meanwhile, images of Kitchener saying your country needs you quickly lost their luster as the massive casualty rate of the war and first-hand accounts of survivors became common knowledge. But in Germany, the war's end helped to boost, rather than diminish, the power of propaganda. The so-called stab-in-the-back hypothesis claim that Germany lost the war, not because of battlefield failings, but because of treacherous Jews and socialists within the civilian government. As hyperinflation took hold and the economy crumbled, propagators of this myth found a ready-made audience among certain sections of German society. Joseph Goebbels used propaganda broadcast in the press or at public events to stir negative emotions and propel Hitler to power. His efforts only increased 
when the Nazis came to power and he was formally installed as Minister for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Thereafter, a systematic campaign of vilifying the Jewish population ramped up with radio broadcasts to supplement the traditional mediums of communication. Even before Great Britain declared war on Germany on the 3rd of September 1939, Goebbels used this new propaganda medium against the United Kingdom. Unfortunately for him, in Wolf Müller Mittler, he had an established broadcaster who could fill the role of host. Mittler's mother was born in Ireland, and he spent many of his formative years there. He was fluent in English, and able to mimic the stereotypical upper-class voice associated with the aristocracy. The German Ministry of Propaganda aimed to influence public opinion in Britain by broadcasting English-language content that on one hand downplayed the need for Britain to join the war, while simultaneously portraying it as from a UK perspective as a hopeless cause. British journalist Jonah Barrington was exposed to the broadcast early on and described what was presumably Mittler's character as speaking English of the whore-whore, damn-it, get-out-of-my-way variety. This description quickly caught on, and the English-speaking German radio host became widely known as Lord Whore-whore. The use of a seemingly upper-crust Englishman to disseminate anti-British propaganda was deliberately provocative. A generation earlier, 800,000 British subjects had taken the king's coin only to be killed fighting forces commanded by his first cousin, the Kaiser of Germany. Anti-German sentiment had compelled the British royal family to adopt the House of Windsor in place of the German name, the House of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. But attempts at distancing themselves from the Germans, and more poignantly, the regime of Hitler, had been undermined by King Edward VIII. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And now that I have been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York, my first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. An admirer of Hitler, who is suspected of having leaked information about French fortifications to the Nazis before the war. But there were plenty of other well-to-do Brits who embraced far-right ideologies. In 1932, the British Union of Fascists had been formed by Sir Edward Mosley. His supporters included the Duke of Bedford, the Earl of Glasgow, Bank of England director Frank Teox, a number of members of Parliament, while England cricket captain Arthur Gilligan was a member of the rival British fascists group. While many members left the group, as it firstly pivoted from Mussolini-style fascism to overt anti-Semitism, then distanced itself from Nazi Germany as war loomed, the idea of an upper-crust traitor running off to aid Germany was highly plausible. Consequently, there was much debate in Britain about the true identity of Lord Haw-Haw. But contrary to public opinion at the time, Haw-Haw 
was never a singular individual. Mittler, who reluctantly did the first few broadcasts, was uncomfortable in his new role for the Reich. But he was quickly replaced with a more authentic voice, that of Norman Bailey Stewart. The son of a British lieutenant colonel, a World War I veteran, and graduate of the prestigious Bedford School, Stewart had been court-martialed in 1933 for providing military secrets to Germany. He'd done so after falling in love with a German in an attempt to gain German nationality. When released from prison, he settled in Vienna before being expelled as a Nazi sympathiser. He replaced the voice of Mittler as Hohor just a week before the war began. But Bailey Stewart wasn't particularly enamoured with the scripts he was given. Additionally, despite being a critic of Mitter's earlier broadcasts, he wasn't viewed as being particularly effective in the role. The baton then passed to another man, William Joyce, mistakenly viewed by many as the only voice for Haw Haw. Joyce, ironically, was the first man in the role, though, to reveal his true identity. Many of the right-wing extremists in Europe at this time were aristocratic imperialists in the mould of Hermann Goering. Others were working-class veterans of World War I who were dissatisfied with the outcome of the war and or the efforts of democratically elected politicians to revive the economy after the post-war slump. William Joyce fell into neither of these categories. In fact, by birth, he wasn't even European. He was born in New York City on April 26th, 1906. His father, Michael, a US citizen, was Irish by birth and a Catholic. His family were from County Mayo, one of the areas most affected by the devastating potato famine decades earlier. His mother, Gertrude, a Protestant, was of Anglo-Irish ancestry. At this time, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, as well as the British Empire, but it was a nation divided along both religious and political lines. The majority of the population and the working class were predominantly Catholic. The majority of the landowners and the ruling class were largely Protestant, many of them being at least partially of Scottish or English ancestry. Republicans, many of whom were Catholic, sought independence from the UK. Unionists, most of whom were Protestant, wanted to continue as British subjects. Joyce's parents were both Unionists. When William was just three, they left the United States and moved to County Galway on the west coast of Ireland. Like Mayo, Galway had been at the epicentre of the potato famine. Its population had been shrinking for decades, with many residents making their way to America. It was fairly unusual at the time for American residents to make the opposite move. Despite some hostility from his mother's family to Catholicism, William Joyce enrolled at a Jesuit school. His parents' unionist sympathies were seemingly shared by their son, and when the Irish War of Independence erupted in 1919, he began work as a courier for the British military. The Joyce family had provided lodgings for members of the police force, when auxiliary policemen known as the Black and Tans began committing atrocities Anyone associated with the police force 
became a potential target of the rebellious Irish Republican Army. The IRA suspected William Joyce of having a hand in the killing of a Catholic priest, Michael Griffin, a Republican sympathiser who was seemingly killed by the Black and Tan. Fearing reprisals, Joyce fled to England, where he completed a degree in English. While studying, he became interested in fascism, though he initially remained politically mainstream and was attached to the Conservative Party. At a Tory meeting in 1924, a communist protester slashed his face, leaving him with a distinctive and permanent scar. The identity of the attacker was never established, but Joyce claimed his assailant was Jewish, while his wife later claimed it had been an Irish woman. In 1932, William Joyce was one of the first members of Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. Like Joseph Goebbels, he was a gaunt and serious-looking individual, but he was a powerful orator, and his venom was infective. But like Mussolini in Italy, when he was unable to get his message across with words, he was an adherent of political violence. His actions often saw political meetings descend into brutal brawls. This thuggery saw some members drift away from the group, as did the shifting focus to anti-Semitism, something which Joyce saw as a top priority. Nonetheless, Mosley was sufficiently impressed with Joyce to hire him for a paid position in the group. But after disastrous results during the 1937 elections, the BUF cut costs by laying off workers such as Joyce and steering from an anti-Semitic platform to one more concerned with avoiding war with Germany. The BUF's move reflected the reality on the ground, as support for anything resembling fascism was drastically waning. But rather than follow the lead of Mosley and temper his rhetoric, Joyce ramped it up. He quickly founded the National Socialist League with fellow BUF veterans Angus McNabb and John Beckett. To all intents and purposes, it was a British branch of the German Nazi party. Joyce took to giving Nazi salutes in meetings, but the fledgling group quickly floundered as members left for other right-wing groups, albeit less extremist organisations. By the summer of 1939, waning popularity was the least of Joyce's worries. Anticipating war, the British Parliament hastily passed Defence Regulation 18b, enabling the authorities to arrest individuals who might oppose the war. At this time, both Joyce and his wife had been under surveillance from MI5 and the police special branch as Nazi sympathisers. Having intercepted his communications with an alleged German spy, MI5 knew that in the event of war, he planned to travel to Germany. Nonetheless, while other fascists such as Mosley were quickly rounded up, Joyce escaped to Germany and it's since been reported that he received a tip-off about his impending arrest from an agent in MI5. Once in Germany, Joyce began his radio work for the Nazis. Whilst the BBC used broadcasts with the intent of bringing news to mainland Europe, anyone in Germany listening to the BBC risked being executed. In Poland, owning a radio was banned. 
In contrast, the British government, partly due to the backlash against propaganda in World War I, took no steps to punish anyone for simply listening to German broadcasts. Technical efforts were made to intercept and disrupt these broadcasts, and despite some success, these ultimately proved futile. Consequently, some politicians put immense pressure on the BBC to produce rebuttals or similar content to Hawhaws to bolster British morale and to undermine the Nazis. The BBC largely resisted these efforts, but there were some limitations placed on the corporation. For example, reports of bombing raids on Britain could be reported, but no details of casualties or precise locations could be shared. Additionally, weather reports were banned, as these could be used by German pilots to their advantage. An interesting aspect with relation to the BBC is that William Joyce's own brother worked for the corporation before being so outraged at the German bombing of his own home that he quit the BBC and joined the army. But how big of a problem were these German broadcasts? 80 years later, it's difficult to imagine people in Britain happily listening to radio shows broadcast by the enemy. But before the war had even started, Haw Haw, in one of his incarnations, had charmed a portion of the public with his lampooning of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and the restrictive rationing laws. And unlike the serious-minded BBC reporters, Haw Haw interspersed his reports with humour. Only a person of Mr Churchill's mentality could congratulate anybody first on shooting unarmed men, and secondly, on flagrantly violating Norwegian neutrality. During times of trouble, the British love a little bit of self-deprecating gallows humour, and that is precisely what they got. Near the start of the war, one report suggested that two-thirds of British citizens had at some point listened to at least one of these German broadcasts. But their reasons for listening evolved once the serious fighting began. In 1941, there was no internet, social media, or concept of 24-hour news. Reports from the front eventually made their way back to the government. Then after the censors had done their work, decisions were made about what and when news could be shared with the public. To illustrate this point, we can look at the case of Victoria Duncan, a famed Scottish psychic who during the war became the last person ever convicted under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. In November 1941, Duncan held a seance during which she claimed to have received a message from a spirit detailing the sinking of the HMS Barham. Two months later, just as Duncan had described, news of the vessel's sinking became front-page news. For a moment, Duncan was a psychic wonder, until it was discovered the government had kept the sinking under wraps for two months. Although family members of the stricken vessel had been informed before Duncan's apparent apparition. This led to her arrest under the Witchcraft Act, but more pertinently, as an example of information being at a premium during the war. Consequently, for people on the home front, Haw Haw, despite his nefarious views and odious paymasters, was at least 
another source of potential information about friends and family fighting on the European mainland. For people on the south and eastern coasts wary of an imminent invasion, or those on the west coast subjected to bombing raids enabled by Eamon de Valera's refusal to enforce a lightning blackout in Ireland, news of German conquests in France, the Low Countries or Norway provided them with an insight into the impending risks they faced. Complete collapse of French resistance after mere six weeks of fighting ought to be a salutary warning. The French forces were better trained, better equipped and more numerous than the British. Suffice to say, the British public were more than willing to hold their noses and listen to what Lord Hawhaw had to say. And rather than simply try to scare them into submission, he tried to present himself as a liberator of sorts. The dictator of Britain is interested solely in the old world of Jewish international finance. He wants to say nothing with his own skin. In the face of certain defeats, he is exposing Britain to invasion and the horrors of war. William Joyce's biographer, Colin Holmes, portrays him as a narcissist, the product of an indulgent mother who convinced him of his own inflated self-worth. Consequently, Joyce believed every failing in his life was the result of the deck being stacked against him, and behind this conspiracy were the Jews. He blamed Jewish people for his failure to land a job in the Foreign Office, for his failure to complete a postgraduate degree, and, as stated earlier, for the huge scar on his face. He hoped the British people would be as receptive to this kind of fanciful scapegoating as he was, and developed his concept on his show with the introductions of characters called Schmidt and Smith. The Anglo-Saxon derivation of both names emphasised the common roots of the British and the Germans. The duo discussed how Jews had worked to exploit and suppress the working class in both countries. And as Joyce said, opportunists had enabled them to do so. One of the alleged accomplices was British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. More bizarrely, another of the accused was Viscount Rothermere, owner of the Daily Mail, a newspaper that was right-wing and, like Joyce, a former member of the British Union of Fascists. But his broadcasts weren't just problematic for the content they shared. They also spawned spurious rumours and falsehoods that quickly undermined the public morale. In 1940, a middle-aged clerk in Mansfield reported that Hawhaw had shared details of a planned takeover of local schools by Nazi stormtroopers. The BBC reviewed all of the recent German broadcasts and found no such messaging. The man in question, Sidney House, was arrested essentially for spreading rumours and he was fined £10. He eventually admitted he had simply shared rumours he had heard in the community but had attributed them to Hawhaw to add some gravitas to his story. In 1941, Hitler decided to invade the USSR, while months later, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. These two events drew the Soviet Union and the United States into the war. 
the odds for the Nazis were now insurmountable, and inevitably the tide of conflict slowly turned. William Joyce found himself in the unenviable position of not only having to defend the indefensible, but to promote the fantasy that Nazi Germany could somehow win the war. On the 30th of April, 1945, with Soviet troops pouring into Berlin, desperate and seemingly inebriated, Joyce delivered his last message from Germany. That whatever else happens, Germany will live. And therefore I say to you, in these last words, you may not hear from me again for a few months. I say, es lieber Deutschland, and farewell. Within a few hours of the broadcast, Hitler and his henchman Goebbels, the propaganda minister who had championed Joyce, were both dead having taken their own lives, rather than living to face justice. At 2.41 a.m., General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Force. Joyce resolved to do what he had done twice before when faced with adversity. He tried to leave the country. In doing so, he was hoist by his own petard. As he attempted to cross the border to Denmark, armed with a fake passport, British intelligence officers recognised his voice from the radio and mistakenly thinking he was reaching for a gun when he tried to grab his fake passport, German-Jewish officer Horst Pinschuer shot him in the backside. He was then arrested and ultimately returned to Britain to stand trial. He was charged with treason. It was a controversial charge on part of the accusers. After all, he was American-born and had since gained German citizenship. However, whilst in Britain before the war, he had lied about his birth and claimed he'd been born in Ireland when it was under British rule. This was in order to gain a passport. The fact he'd lied about his place of birth was deemed in the court as immaterial. The fact he'd gained a British passport was the key detail. Of the three charges he faced, the one that stuck was a charge of traitorously adhering to the king's enemies in the period between 1939 and 1940, before he became a naturalized German. The defense argued that even if he were British, jurisdiction did not extend to crimes committed in a foreign country. The prosecutors countered that his British passport afforded him the benefit of consular privileges. Therefore, he was subject to British law. He was found guilty, and despite his case being reviewed in the House of Lords, where Baron Porter sided with the defence. The verdict was upheld, and on the 3rd of January, 1946, he became the last British person to be hanged for treason. Before and after his trial, an array of scholars and legalists have argued that it was treated unduly harshly when compared with numerous Nazis guilty of war crimes who escaped trial altogether or 
like Albert Speer and Carl Donitz, received relatively modest sentences. But while he may or may not have had a hands-on involvement in the Holocaust and other atrocities, his fanatical devotion to Nazism remained with him to the bitter end. His last words were his desire to see Britain become great again, whilst launching a blistering attack on communists and Jews. But Joyce, of course, was just one of many people to adopt the Haw Haw moniker. The original, albeit reluctant, incarnation of the character was voiced by German Wolf Mittler. Having stepped away from the role, he later fell under suspicion of the Gestapo and fled to Italy. Having been captured by German forces there, he was able to escape and sought refuge in Switzerland. After the war, he continued his broadcast career in West Germany. Among other things, he famously provided a German-language voiceover during John F. Kennedy's Cuban Missile Crisis speech. Scotsman Norman Bailey Stewart, who remained in Germany during the war, was captured in Vienna after having travelled there for medical treatment. As he had gained German citizenship before the war began, it was determined that unlike Joyce, he could not be tried for treason. But whilst he was still in Austria, MI5 tried to have him sent to the Soviet occupation zone, knowing he would likely face capital punishment under their jurisdiction. But he was ultimately sent back to England, charged with aiding an enemy, and after a five-year spell in prison, he changed his name and quietly retired to Ireland, the home of the other Lord Haw Haw, William Joyce's family. <laughs>